0: to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles.
1: This is If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles breakup. Welcome to episode four. He goes by many names and has been named in many a lawsuit. Today we're going to talk about... The Demon King, Mr. Alan Klein. Well, I mean, it's interesting seeing Alan Klein,
0: who is not with us anymore, so we sha not talk too badly of him. But But at least you uh, can't be
1: sued if you do. (laughs) That's true.
0: (laughs) As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The endgame was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of The Breakup. I thought that you would last
1: that if i ran away from you that you would want me to that i got a big surprise oh, oh, oh yeah. if you want it here it's and get it,
0: Make it my so to recap our breakup series so far We started in 1968, where we believe it all began.
1: We established that at the beginning of that year, John was devoted to the Beatles to such an extent that his wife Cynthia noted that he needed them more than they needed him. Then suddenly, following the meditation retreat in India, a bout of suicidal ideation and an acid binge back in England, a mysterious and dramatic reversal occurred in John's mind. We believe that something triggered John to such an extent that he upended his life and made a radical move to a new romantic partnership with Yoko Ono.
0: Our hypothesis is that by the spring of 1968, John, who needed the Beatles more than they needed him, may have felt unloved, unappreciated, rejected or abandoned. So he acted defensively and preemptively. John's actions were likely motivated by characteristics John himself has consistently articulated. Neediness, paranoia, and jealousy. We believe he made a move to Yoko partly out of genuine inspiration and attraction, but also out of self-preservation and as a direct provocation to his partner. John wanted proof of his value to McCartney, but rather than inspiring the desired response, John's mind game set in motion a series of events that led to the unraveling of their partnership.
1: In episode two, we discussed the Let It Be project, how six months after John's initial move, John and Paul came back together in what seems to have been a make or break moment. Our contention is that in this period, John provided Paul with one more chance to remedy the situation and figure out a way to resolve the problems in their partnership. Ultimately, they could not figure out a viable solution, so they ended in an impasse, which coincided with their weddings to their new partners.
0: In our last episode, we discussed the Ballad of John and Yoko, how it was John's way of coping with the emotional fallout of the potential demise of Lennon McCartney. Following the weddings, John embarks on a full-time mission creating a new identity and personal narrative with his wife, which had the twin benefits of elevating his and Yoko's status while depositioning Paul and minimizing or erasing his importance. Our theory is that the advent of John and Yoko did not destroy Lennon McCartney. It was the crumbling of the Lennon McCartney dream that necessitated the creation of this new myth. John needed something new to believe in, a new story to tell himself and the public.
1: In this episode, we will investigate the various situations and people that managed to divide John and Paul, that sowed the seeds of distrust, which ultimately spiraled into a breakup that neither of them wanted to happen this episode will focus on the impact of Alan Klein. Jonathan Gould wrote, The axis of the group's genius, of course, was the collaboration between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. For more than 10 years, the musical friendship between these two partners had remained the predominant relationship in both of their lives. We agree that the unique chemistry and bond between John and Paul was an integral part of the band's genius, and for years, that relationship had been impenetrable. But beyond a musical friendship, these exceptionally talented boys shared so much more. Background, sense of humor, intelligence, creativity, even the loss of their mothers at a young age. And more importantly, throughout their formative years, they shared a common purpose and identity. In fact, by 1966,
0: John had so internalized their shared identity and viewed it with such reverence that he was quoted as saying, only 100 people can understand our music, George, Ringo, and a few friends around the world which reflects the extent to which he had fused their thinking in his mind. With Lennon McCartney, they shared a name both legally and in the public consciousness, and their shared dream and sense of identity had enabled them to act as an unbreakable unit. But the events of the past year, the mind games, the rifts, the hurts, the marriages, and now mounting business problems had placed their partnership under enormous strain, and it created a crack in their bond and a separation in their loyalties. And even the smallest of cracks was enough to allow people with various agendas who had previously been unable to penetrate the relationship, get between them and exploit their division for their own gain. And unfortunately, they were able to do what no one else had managed to do, turn them against each other. In the case of Klein, he created a sense of mistrust and hurt so intense that he turned the closest of friends, closer than most couples, from partners to adversaries.
1: And once Lennon McCartney started to collapse, so did the Beatles. Let's talk about Ellen Klein.
0: Yeah, so we talked about him a little bit. Um, John John's fanboyish reaction to him when he first met him, um, when we talked about the Let It Be tapes and how he was immediately smitten. And um, we think that, you know, from from reading about Klein, we really think that Klein has...
1: He's got three modes
0: yeah he's got he's got three modes which are flatter, promise, mm-hmm. and if neither of those works, bully and clearly with John, you know in that first meeting, we've got the flatter, you know he went in and said, "I know you've written all of these things, you've written so many lines and these beautiful songs, and you know attributed a lot of things." to John and said, you know, played to him as the leader and John loved it. He ate it up. And I think he promised Yoko a show. And I don't know if he did on that occasion, but I think he played to Yoko cause she liked him and, um, you know, told them that he was gonna, he was gonna solve all their beetle problems. And, and John, you know, we hear the conversation of him talking to jo- George. I mean, it, you know, John seems to think he's his long lost brother, Basically after one meeting knows him as well as George.
1: So I I think what Klein did most likely was he did enough research on Brian Epstein and he learned enough about how Brian approached the group and how everything went down. And he sort of tried to replicate that situation. Um, Since, you know, one of the things that John said, Klein knew, like, everybody thought Paul was the leader, but, like, Klein knew I was the real leader, and so he went to me.
0: Which is what John wants to
1: believe,
0: you know, and... and
1: Oh, sure, and I'm sure Alan told him that, too. I think he was like, I know you're the real leader, John.
0: Yeah, and then <laughs> yeah. John wants to be reinstated. He wants to be, you know, he wants to be yeah. occupying this role. So somebody who sees John that way is going to appeal to John. And that's, you know, when we look at Brian, Brian did a lot of amazing things for the Beatles, but he was clearly biased towards John from the start.
1: Yeah. And we know that everyone in the band was aware of it. So from the outset, there's a conflict of interest for Brian in terms of representing Lennon McCartney as a 50-50 partnership And we can understand why Paul might bristle at that.
0: I I empathize as, you know, I can't imagine having a partner and a potential manager who was in love with my partner. That would be a very scary situation for me, I think. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like a situation where I'd feel confidence in a manager in terms of, you know, my belief that that we'll be treated equally.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they weren't. I mean, they, they definitely weren't.
0: Well, here's the thing is that I've never seen that written in a single Beatles book. I've never seen that, that, you know, uh, sort of a defense for Paul's bristling. I mean, to me, it's always very clear. Like, why wouldn't Paul have some concerns about this situation? I mean, yes. about
1: about Brian's flagrant favoritism of John that he didn't bother to hide that everybody knew about and no one disputes.
0: Right. That, <laughs> that, but I've never seen that once You know, it's kind of reported about the funny story about how Paul, you know, showed up late and this was a power move. But I think that one of the things that, you know, that I see is that Paul acts out a little bit with Brian, probably as sort of a retaliation for the fact that he is not cherished as an equal with John. You know, I empathize with his, his actions there. I mean, I actually... (laughs) rude for him to do these things when I'm reading the Beatles story, because, you know, Paul, as much as people want to talk about John being the leader of the group, we know that Paul was an equal with John in terms of the band and the writing and the Lennon-McCartney partnership. So why wouldn't he want to be treated as an equal?
1: Yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, first of all, if you and I are songwriting partners, 50-50 partners, Mm -hmm. And we have a band and we find a manager and the manager is shamelessly in love with you and trying to fuck you.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a scenario where I, I have a partner and the manager's in love with the partner and then whisks my partner away and comes back and our business situation is impacted by their yes. little uh, romantic rendezvous, I would be devastated. I mean, how powerless would you feel, and how betrayed?
1: I, I would be beside myself. I would be, and now you're in a situation where it's like, what are you going to do? You're not going to walk.
0: Well, that's the thing: is Paul in 1963, when they're just on the cusp of superstardom, really yeah. has, has no leverage because just to expo- that, right. explain that to anybody who does not know that, um, you know, Paul always said that John going to Spain for multiple reasons, but one of them was to maneuver the situation to reinforce to Brian that he was the leader of the group. And then he comes back and they had had, I guess, discussions about whether it was going to be Lennon-McCartney or McCartney-Lennon, or whether on some McCartney led songs, it would be McCartney-Lennon and Lennon led songs, it would be Lennon-McCartney. So this was up in the air prior to the trip. And when they came back, it was decided by, I guess, John and Brian, that it would be Lennon and McCartney from then onwards. Mm -hmm. And so you see that this was a real impact of the favoritism.
1: I mean, if that was my partner and my best friend, I would think you dirty bitch. Well, you know what?
0: I think Paul did because he mentions this in the early '80s. He he's still angry about it. He's still calling John maneuvering bastard or whatever. I you know, and it's interesting because I suspect that so the seeds of distrust in Paul. Yeah, you know, from that moment onwards, that that Lennon McCartney had been like this partnership that they had had for years, and now that they're hitting the big time, John does a move that solidifies it without talking to Paul. Paul's his partner, you know, and you can see, I mean, we're getting into a different territory here, but you can see that going forward, Paul moves in with the Ashers. Paul starts to, I, I just wonder how much that played into his mind of, all right, we're going to be best friends and partners, but I'm always going to be watching. But, but again, I think, you know, you... Asked a very astute question, which is why is John so excited by Klein? This is not a new lover, this right. is not a new creative yeah. inspiration. This is, yeah, it's true, a dude, a manager. Like, <laughs> yeah, what <fucking> manager. But, <laughs> exactly? So, but clearly, you know, Klein is meeting a need that John has, you know, and as we've discussed, I think part of that new need is he has somebody on his side, he's got an advocate. But I think in some ways, maybe he wants to go back to the dynamics that he had with Brian, which he, you know, which gave him a little bit more pull and power in the group because John and because Brian, you know, was going to make sure that John, John was represented.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I mean, Brian really did a lot for John, actually. I mean, if you look at the early Beatles, the way they're marketed. You know, I mean, he marketed John as the leader. Mm-hmm. John was the smart one.
0: I mean, mm-hmm. he got not, his own uh, book, the intellectual, the smart one, the witty one. Exactly.
1: Like, not I mean, I'm not trying to be rude or anything, but was John the smart one before before <laughs> Brian came along and branded him that? Right. I mean, seriously, was he? No, of course he was the loud one. He was the guy with the toilet seat around his neck.
0: <laughs> he, was crazy, he was the crazy one. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. He was, he was always the crazy one. He was not the smart one.
0: I mean. Right. I mean, Paul, Paul was, I think, probably the smart one, you know, quote unquote, because he went to, you know, was the one doing his A-levels. Right. Exactly. And did very well in school. I mean, yeah. I, you know, clearly John was always brilliant, too. So I'm sure they yes, were both yeah, pieces yeah, of yeah.
1: but, but that tag. yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying John's an idiot.
0: I'm just saying, right? I mean, poor Paul got the cute one, which he was very cute. So there's no denying that. But he has repeatedly said he did not like that either. You know, it's how demeaning for yeah, of course, totally great mind and talent to be called the cute one. You know, oh
1: yeah, Bob Dylan, the cute one. That's his nickname, right? (laughs) fucking stupid right yeah Um, it's fucking stupid yeah i mean if if
0: you look at the stage setup even i noticed this like in the cavern like john and paul are both boom right at the front equal mics and that changes again with you know once the beatles are in motion in 1960 you know paul is a step back
1: with
0: with george
1: Right. So I think Brian has a way of making John feel – he sort of – he he singles him out a little bit as I, I the think, special beetle, the smart one, you know, who writes the books and stuff like that.
0: Right. Whether or not Brian really thought he was the leader, because we have some – you know, we have some anecdotes from people around them who said that actually, you know, Paul got his way a lot with Brian and was very persuasive to Brian – I think that Brian understood the politics of John and John and Paul, where John was so competitive and jealous that if he didn't have this position, that there was going to be problems, right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in name, at least. I mean, don't get me wrong. Both John and Paul can maneuver. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they, they each got their way in various times, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like I'm sure. I'm sure they both worked the angles.
0: Right, right. No, no. I mean, I understand that you're saying that, but that's not the issue. It's that both John was special to Brian, so I'm sure there's a natural tendency to, you know, yeah. be a little little biased in that way. I mean, if you think, if you adore somebody and are in love with them, you're going to see them as very special. But also, I think that he understood that that's what John needed and wanted. And so he advocated for that. And also you have the tendency of the other member who is just incredibly talented and driven. You know, we've got the example of Paul with yesterday and George Martin wanting that to be a solo Paul record. And, and Brian put the brakes on that because he understood that that while that would have worked out probably very well for Paul, that would have been very disruptive to the group. Or at least yeah. he, he he made the assumption that that would be hurtful to the group. So yeah. he, Which said, it no, would yeah.
1: have. It definitely would have.
0: I mean, it, it was a problem even when Paul was just... Like, he even stopped singing it on tour, right? Right. Because right. it was prob- so problematic to John. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that in some ways, you know, we're talking about Klein and Brian because... Klein is playing Brian's playbook by Brian's playbook and, and copying it and in some ways it's working with John because John wants this to be replicated but then we see with Paul Paul does not want it to be re- replicated even though he ended up with a very tight relationship with Brian I think so that he doesn't necessarily want yeah. a manager that's going to be advocating for John and working against him oh yeah oh yeah or biased against him, right. right? Well, we're past that. Yeah, I mean nineteen sixty it, it's the band of nineteen sixty nine is not the band of nineteen sixty two anymore. Right. And they have different right. needs. And even though John may want the same kind of manager as nineteen sixty
1: two, Paul doesn't. Does not. <laughs> no. Yeah. Right? And and no one no one in their right mind could blame him.
0: Except every author ever
1: except every author ever but if every author ever is like well too bad paul because john was the leader and it was his band to do whatever he wanted so if you (laughs) don't like it then go fuck off and quit the band and he's like okay and then they're like whoa how dare he quit the band (laughs) okay well what are what are the choices
0: what are the choices yeah really, he said, I don't want that guy, you know, and we're supposed to have a unanimous decision. And you guys said, too bad. And then trap me in this band with this manager I don't right. want. So eventually I was like, well, okay, my other alternative is to walk. And they're like, fuck you for doing that. It's like, well, yeah, right. what is he supposed to do? He said very clearly, Paul was in a trap. He did not want that manager. Yeah. I mean, and I want to just put on record here for all the people that love Brian, that we do think that Brian was a tremendous manager in many ways. And he loved yeah, yeah, the yeah. group. So even though we do think that for he sure. probably had some bias towards John,
1: we think that we don't think we're going out on a limb by saying that.
0: <laughs> no, but it is unusual to even have anybody address this. Like I, I rarely see that addressed because I think it's assumed that Brian always did what was, uh, for the best interest of the band, which he probably did. Like, I think that yeah. he did have a, a, a probably even a subconscious bias towards John. However, I think one thing that we would agree on is that we think that Brian loved the group and did what was best for the group most of the time, you know? Yeah, and, for sure,
1: for sure.
0: And was, and I think that what he did most effectively was create a situation where the Beatles were protected from outside influences and he knew how to protect and nurture Lennon McCartney. You know what I mean? Like he, I think he yeah. was always trying to create an environment where they would thrive. So that is something that Klein just didn't understand because Klein did not love the Beatles the way that Brian loved them. You know, for him it was about power and money, I think.
1: Yeah. I I definitely agree. And for Sorry. Brian it was about love. And and like, uh, like I'm saying, I, I do think that, you know, lust and love for John did cloud his judgment on occasion. Like yeah, I, I, I agree, you know, yeah. I do think it is wildly inappropriate to to take John to Spain in nineteen sixty three. It, it just is. I mean, yeah. I understand it's a different time and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same at the same time, like you know, if this was the teddy bears or You know, the Shangri-Las or whoever, if the manager of the Shangri-Las took one of the Shangri-Las overseas for two weeks, that would not be okay, and we wouldn't even think twice about it. So right. we have we have uh, about applied. calling it out, yeah. Of course not. Of course yeah. not. So so I understand it was a different time. Like we were joking before we were just like sexual harassment did not exist in 1963. It wasn't <laughs> right, a thing. Right. It was you you they can't complain have a about that. It. Yes. Right. So I understand the framework is kind of, you know, a little bit different and the rules are a little different and, you know, whatever, but at the but same if, time, if that, was, that, that's favoritism that, that goes beyond.
0: Right, exactly. And if this was the Shangri La's, you certainly, you know, the other members would not be in the wrong for complaining that that seemed that's, unfair and being very yes. concerned about their roles. You know, hundred
1: percent. Right. And yet,
0: yeah, and yet in this situation, it's kind of just like, huh? Of course, you know what I mean? Like, and and Paul was upset. Why would he be upset? You know, and and we're kind of saying, yeah, Paul had a right to be upset. We understand why he'd be upset.
1: I mean, in 1963, as we mentioned, like, Paul is a young man. He's like 19 years old. Yeah. Uh, No, he's like
0: 20, 20,
1: 21. Okay. So, like, Paul's Paul's a young man, like, when Barcelona occurs, he's 20 years old. I mean, he doesn't have a lawyer, you know? He doesn't have a mom, you know? He's he doesn't know anything about anything. And and you can argue, I'm sure that like, Oh, well, John didn't know anything either, but you know, clearly John knew enough to take that trip. Right. (laughs) And again, Paul's kind of in a situation where he can't really do anything about it. Brian's in bed with John. Paul's just spinning the wind there. He's not going to leave the band. No, Paul, Paul, Paul's, yeah,
0: Paul's not walking at this point. I mean, he basically has to suck it up.
1: And not only is no one in Beatles world sympathetic to Paul, even worse, even worse is that that Barcelona trip gets romanticized.
0: Right. I mean, instead of being seen as terribly unprofessional, I mean, again, when we're looking at it, we're just like, what? But yet it is romanticized.
1: I mean, I guess if you're just like really super into Brian and John, then fine, romanticize it on your own time. But like for the story of the Beatles, who are supposed to be a band?
0: Yeah, but as we've said, when, you know, in the past, it seems like the story of the Beatles has been this story of John. But if you don't necessarily see it that way, then all of a sudden it just becomes weird.
1: Do you remember that story and, um, in The Cellar Full of Noise, Brian's book that he wrote? He told a story of, in the early days or whatever, in the cavern days, they were picking everybody up to go to the show. And Paul was running late. Like, they got to his house and he was running late. Yep. And Brian ordered them to move on. Like, they were all waiting for him. The Hold on, mm-hmm. Brian. He'll be here for a second. Brian said, this is unacceptable. Leave. And he made Paul take the bus, and then when Paul got there, he was understandably upset about it. Right. Actually, I think he was like he was fuming about it. No, he wasn't going to come
0: until his Brian called his father or something like that. Which good for him. I was just like, "Don't go, Paul. That's ridiculous." Me
1: too. Me too. And, and the story is uses like an example of Paul being a diva or whatever. Like Lewison thinks he's being a crybaby. I'm like. Holy shit. First of all, Brian works for Paul. Yeah. Yeah. How dare he do that to his talent?
0: That's a right. That's a really good point. Who's he working for? It seems like in this scenario, Brian's the star as far as because Paul is not um, jumping to his command. Right.
1: Can you even imagine, can you even imagine Brian telling John to take the fucking bus?
0: Well, why would he do that? Because that's the person he wants to be with. So no, I can't. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the fandom supporting that or thinking that was. What good. a
1: joke. What a fucking joke.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: Good luck. Good luck managing that band. The, the Brian, co- Brian. The co-leader. Without Paul.
0: Exactly. Exactly. The musical leader really of the group. Yeah. That, that was a good one. I mean, that's just unbelievable. That's unbelievable to me In in this fandom is so fucked up. That people think that that's okay and proper treatment. And again, the Beatles don't work for Brian. Brian works for the Beatles.
1: Are you telling me that Paul is not a vital part of the Beatles' success? You're telling me that Paul isn't a star? You're telling me Paul's not putting asses in those seats? How fucking dare you treat him like that?
0: And so if if in 1969, he's got another manager coming in, playing by not not the taking John, whisking John away playbook, but the <laughs> deferring to John and, you know, playing to him being the leader of the group, that that would not appeal to Paul. And And that doesn't seem to be the only reason Paul is opposed to Klein. I mean, Paul's issue with Klein seems to be more that he thinks he's a bad guy and going to steal from
1: them. Which you know? he is and did,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? So in in that way, Paul just seems very very smart in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. You know, a better judge of character because the, the the idea like we're talking about this a lot, but I don't. I've never seen this in Paul's defense that he liked John and I didn't. You know what I mean? Like that. Oh yeah 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 not, yeah.
1: It's true. We're bringing Paul, it up, but he he doesn't really complain about it.
0: Right, right. Paul does pinpoint the fact that John seems to treat Klein as a daddy character. And so maybe he's quite aware that like Brian, you know, Klein's going to fulfill this need in John's life, but he doesn't seem to be competitive, like, well, Klein took to John, so I didn't want him. You know, no, his, no, 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 his, no. his arguments, again, always seem to be like, well, why do we have to pay him 20%? And and he was, he was a terrible person, and I hated them, and I thought he was going to try and kill me.
1: Yeah, and, is that not enough? Uh, right,
0: <laughs> right. So Paul's issues seem to be slightly tangential to what we're talking about. But, w- I mean, our point is just that we can see how even the way that Klein entered the group or approached the group, was not going to play out well, especially if Klein is playing this way and doesn't have the love that Brian had and the understanding of the group, you know, and desired to keep them as a tight unit.
1: Right. And also this didn't happen in a vacuum. So it should be useful to consider the context. You know, what was their previous manager like?
0: So yes, we've got Klein coming in and Maybe looking at that playbook, maybe hearing a little bit about the situation, about, you know, maybe what John might need to hear. He certainly must know that Yoko and John feel persecuted.
1: Well, he might have, if he did do his homework and he did ask around and he did know a little bit of what was up, he also might have known that John's position had slipped in the band. And he might've known, he might've had the instinct that John wanted to get some upper hand back.
0: Right. Well, I mean, clearly he's playing to John. So he's, (coughs) you know what I mean? Like he's not going in, you know, knowing that John is the, the clear leader and he doesn't need, you know, if John was, I think you'd have a different approach about for the good of the band. Whereas he knows to play to John and John's ego and, It worked. You know, John was in love the next day.
1: Yeah, for sure. It definitely worked with John. He, and he played Yoko, right? So he got those two on board. And then I think he kind of relied on John to close the deal with the rest of the band. Right.
0: And I think that the fact that he doesn't, he never does is hugely insightful to the politics of the band for all of the authors that want to talk about, you know, John being the clear leader or the the leader of the band. I think, I think this shows that it's bullshit because as much as maybe Paul was willing to let John have that slight edge publicly, I mean, Paul, this shows that Paul is immovable in his opinion. He's not swayed by John. Paul does what he wants. And if you don't get Paul on your side too, the Beatles fall apart.
1: That's right. I mean, it's nineteen sixty-nine. Why would Paul take a back seat in nineteen sixty-nine? Well, we
0: do have a little bit of evidence based on, you know, the trial that Klein did try <laughs> and play to Paul as well, saying that, you know, Paul makes the point that I always thought John would be interested to know, and I'm paraphrasing here, <laughs> but but this idea that, you know, he would tell me I was the talented one, I was the, you know, the most talented one or whatever he says, oh. the star. So
1: yeah. Y- y- so so John your relationship with Klein isn't that special cuz he tried that shit on me too. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> he came on to me too. So don't think that you were yeah, you were the he- the one.
1: <laughs> yeah. He only has eyes for you. Exactly.
0: So, you know, this is clearly something that I wish Paul would have actually told John at the time, maybe he tried to, but you know, he certainly makes this clear in the lawsuit. So, if Klein was really playing to him like that, he may not, that may not have been the right approach to Paul. Well, clearly whatever approach he was taking with Paul wasn't working. Because yeah. he wasn't able to flatter or promise enough to Paul to get Paul on board. They're just he could he couldn't charm Paul. And Yeah. That must have driven him crazy.
1: Yeah, well, I think Paul's a little more savvy and could see through people a little better, maybe.
0: Right, right. Well, that, that's the assumption that, you know, because we know in the end that Klein ended up being not a good choice, that, you know, Paul also probably knew a little bit more reputationally. You know, he, he said in his book that he talked yeah. to Mick Jagger, that he had some background information. He did a little due diligence, which John should have done too.
1: Well, yeah, I was about to say like Paul might have actually vetted him a little bit, and John did not at all. You know, John was like one meeting, and he's like, (laughs) but he said all the right things to me, and I felt good. So clearly, he was
0: clearly he's a genius. (laughs) He knows all this stuff. You know, this is not something that I think it must have perplexed Klein. You know, like why can I get this one guy, and I've been, you know. I thought he was the leader, and yet he doesn't seem to be able to convince his partner in any way to go for me. You know, it must have been confusing to him because he calculated, he made a political calculation that really did not work out. He totally misjudged the politics of the Beatles. And, And ultimately, it was his undoing.
1: Yes, which which no authors like to face that reality either.
0: No, I mean, to me, this is the clearest evidence that we have that you cannot attribute leadership of the Beatles to John, period, because this is a case scenario where John, if he was the true leader, would have convinced everyone. I think if he was working on behalf of the Beatles at this point, he would have wanted everyone to be on board with Klein before they signed. But I think the fact that John didn't do that is not necessarily representative of the fact that he wasn't into the Beatles. I think that that, for me, reflects that he felt at a disadvantage. Yeah. And so when somebody came in, this white knight came in, he was like, cool, I don't care. I'm going with him. He's going to help me in the battle within the Beatles.
1: And, you know, the thing that's really, really bothersome to me is hearing – Lewison defending Alan Klein and characterizing him as like their warrior and their hero and stuff like that. This is a guy who is like being terrible to Paul,
0: right? Who again is perhaps Lewison needs to be reminded is a Beetle, and so he matters. His opinion matters. And so if Paul doesn't want him to represent him, then it doesn't matter how much they want the others want him to go in and defend them. You've got one quarter of the Beatles being um, viscerally repulsed by the guy. That's not appropriate. Sorry, Lewison.
1: Right. And, and Klein is being an absolute fucking nightmare to Paul.
0: Right. Let's have a look at some. Of, we, we, you know, we've got many anecdotes about Klein. Almost everybody in their orbit has horror stories about Klein. So this is not just like a Paul Klein thing. You know, if Paul was the only one who had uh, a negative reaction to Klein. Then maybe you could just say, well, it was something personal, but it's like every single character in the Beatles world hates Klein, except John. And (laughs) I guess, well, John and Yoko and George, he gets George on board. Um, And even Ringo, who does side with him, says later in the anthology that if it would have been anyone other than the Eastmans, he would have sided with Paul. So, you know, it seems like Ringo was not, even though, you know, Lewis and refused to acknowledge that. It seems like Ringo was not as enamored with Klein
1: originally. Yeah. He just didn't think it was fair to go with Paul's in-laws.
0: Right. It's basically like he didn't have a choice. He didn't think that they had a choice because they were... You know, Paul's in law. So he had to go with the other alternative. I mean, it would have helped everyone if they would have had a different a third, alternative. A third
1: party. Yeah. yeah.
0: Paul says in a quote that he did want to bring in other alternatives, but John was besotted digging by digging his, in his heels digging his yeah. and was, you know, in, in love with Klein.
1: Well, and the attitude, I mean, I can't believe he actually put voice to this. It's so offensive. But like the attitude like, well, Paul should have just fallen in line and did whatever John said, even though, spoiler alert, Klein ends up fucking the three of them and they take him to court and he countersues them and he ends up in fucking jail. Like, P.S., he's not the fucking hero of the story. <laughs> he's a dirtbag.
0: Right. We don't care how much you want to try and spin it. We know the end of the story. So that makes it really hard to make him the good guy.
1: And, like, just um, just to illustrate it, uh, I think we should read this excerpt from Glenn John's book.
0: Right, about his treatment of Paul.
1: Alan Klein came to London with the sole objective of closing the deal, and having had an unsuccessful meeting with Paul in the morning, he left for Heathrow to return home to New York. Paul and I were working together in Olympic that afternoon, and there was a noticeable sense of relief when he heard that Klein had left for the airport. However, Klein had second thoughts about leaving and decided to have one more attempt at changing Paul's mind face-to-face. Unannounced, Klein walked into the studio and very quickly it became apparent that as voices were raised, a private conversation was taking place. I turned off all the mics in the room and left them to it. The control room of a studio is isolated from the recording room where the musicians play, but even all that acoustic treatment was not enough to prevent me hearing Paul McCartney defend himself against Alan Klein's attempt at bullying him into submission. It was extremely unpleasant to witness.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, that is so outrageous and and honestly painful
1: to hear. In Paul's safe space of the studio, even.
0: Well, and beyond that, I mean, this is supposed to be somebody who is the representative. Again, Klein works for Paul who is, by the way, the biggest star in the world at this time. Right. And we've got information that he's having to defend himself against Alan Klein's attempt at bullying him into submission. I mean, is this what John George and Ringo want? I mean, we should just stop and think about that for a second. Is that what they wanted? They just kind of glossed over this.
1: They're like... Paul was just being pig-headed and he just wanted to have his way. It's like, "Oh, his way, you mean not being harassed and bullied and screamed at by somebody who's trying to take his money, trying to like <laughs> apply for a job to work for him?" Yes, exactly. I mean, having
0: representation is a really tricky thing. You want to have somebody that represents who you are. And if this is his treatment of Paul, why should Paul choose him? Why would Paul choose him when he's treated like this?
1: But I think the I think the answer is that John is always right, even when he's wrong, because he's the leader and it's his band and he should get to do whatever he wants with it, including crashing and burning it. Right.
0: So anyways, yes, Paul had the uh clarity to see that this guy was not appropriate. I got to be, I got to say I'm impressed at his strength and just ability to make a decision that I don't like this guy. I don't want him to represent me and he will not represent me. And he, he stuck to that. Yeah. I mean, and you know, we, we've got some, some quotes from Paul that are horrifying.
1: So Paul said to Klein, it looked like I was trying to screw the situation. He used to call me the reluctant virgin. I said, fuck off. I don't want to fucking marry you. That's all. He's going, oh, you know, he may, maybe he will. Will he? Won't he? That's a definite maybe. It was really difficult.
0: The reluctant virgin.
1: Nice. That is so revolting, like so inappropriate and aggressive.
0: These are very demeaning kind of words, the reluctant virgin. And Paul is yeah. just, Paul is saying, I don't want you. Stop coming on to me. Stop throwing yourself, and putting yourself in my <laughs> right. face. I don't want yes. you. And again, it's not, you know, if, for example, they want to push back and say, well, you know what? <clears throat> they just really wanted to sign him and thought Paul was just, you know, acting up. We know that everybody in the circle also hated Klein. We've got Derek Taylor says, When I think of going through it all again, well, I could just about stand parts of it, but I couldn't stand living through the arrival of Klein. That was miserable. I've never been so unhappy.
1: Derek calls him the demon king.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, you know what? There is probably a Klein perspective. He's a wheeler dealer. He was desperate to manage the biggest band in the world. He probably wasn't coming in, you know, to, I mean, it was not not in his interest to destroy the band, but I think that he did. And, you know, when he couldn't get his way with Paul, he tried to be, we tried to, promise he tried to flatter when those didn't work. He tried his bullying. And I think that he was shocked when he realized that Paul was way fucking tougher than he ever imagined.
1: The thing is, I think he pegged John pretty good. Right. Um, that one he did, because he closed the deal with John in fucking one night. Like, John is a fucking <laughs> right. easy score, right? <laughs> right, right.
0: He just laid down.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, Don, I, John, I, Don, I'm Don. yours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. This is from Beatles vs. Stones by John McMillan. He says that um, after meeting Klein, the next morning, Lennon sent a memo to EMI's chairman, Sir Joseph Lockwood, quote, please give Klein any information he wants and full cooperation, unquote. That came as alarming news to McCartney. So again, John is not just giving Klein a verbal over the phone, like, yeah, I want you to be my manager after one evening. He is literally, like, ordering EMI's chairman to to give Klein like sensitive financial information. <laughs>
0: right. And, and this, the fact that he says this came as alarming news to McCartney would suggest that he was doing that unilaterally absolutely, with, w- without discussion, which again is not working as a leader or team member.
1: Not at all. You could certainly understand why Paul would begin to get very nervous.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, how, how incredibly concerning would that be that Paul hasn't even had the opportunity to meet with the guy and John's already tied to him.
1: I don't think John specifically did that to fuck Paul over. You know, I think he probably was just acting impetuously and, and, and act, acting on emotion, not logically.
0: Right. I think that it's a reflection of how inspired he was by Klein (laughs) And how wooed he was, how Paul calls him intoxicated, you know, is the word that Paul uses. Um, But I think that, you know, that this may be taken as a sign of, you know, John was ready to leave the Beatles. So he was just acting unilaterally. But I don't think that that's it. I think he found somebody that he felt like would enhance his position within the Beatles and was so gung ho. He decided to go to him regardless of what the rest of the group did.
1: I definitely think that. I mean, I, I think the the point is to get power to use in combat with Paul.
0: Absolutely. And so you can see why this would be concerning to Paul. You know.
1: Right. But if you but you like if, if John is acting recklessly and emotionally and irrationally, you cannot get mad at Paul and fault him for going, hold on a second. What happened? Wait, 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 slow down. Let me see this guy's papers. Let me, let me look at his records. Do we have any references?
0: Let (laughs) let me look into him a little bit. Let me ask around people in New York. I know some people.
1: Exactly. Can can my, can my in-laws take a look at him? They're lawyers. They know people. They know things. Can I at least hear what there is to hear about him?
0: Right. And and the other thing is, is that, you know, Paul and John are still Lennon-McCartney and they are still the Beatles. So John acting like this is the first time one of them just went and acted in a way that was so um, so selfishly. You know, there is no like, you know, for all of this talk about Paul being self-interested and egotistical, John's the one that met a, a manager and immediately signed with him without consulting the rest of the group. I mean, that's crazy. Can you imagine if your partner of 12 years all of a sudden turned around and was like, I met somebody last night. He's my manager now. Good luck. You know, it's just like, what the fuck? Right. And and Paul knows John is taking heroin. I mean, I think reckless is a really good word for the way that John acted. Intoxicated is Paul's word. So intoxicated Mm. and reckless. Yeah. Why isn't Paul given more sympathy for actually being like a sober presence in this situation going, hold on, this is a really big deal.
1: And then people get mad at him. I mean, like he's so cold and heartless, and <laughs> so like concerned about business and money and whatever. <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ. Well, that's because, you know, it's like his partner is living life on the edge every day, you know, making these insane moves. I mean, right. Paul's he's like, forced doing what- into this position of being responsible. Right.
0: Again, he has said that he doesn't like business, but he, between the two of them, <laughs> I mean, somebody has to be responsible or somewhat responsible. And one of the things that we talked about is, um, that John, that, you know, John's position was greatly strengthened by the fact that George and Ringo were on his side. Um, and, you know, John talks about this later in, in, in Lennon remembers that he maneuvered to get the situation mm-hmm. to his advantage, but in Womack's current book, Solid State, he talks about the fact that it wasn't so much John's maneuvering, or you know, maybe it was partly that, but he attributes Ringo and George's interest in Klein, partly to the fact that Klein promised to renegotiate the Beatles contract and win a lucrative advance on their behalf, which, you know, so it was kind of they were wooed by the idea that this guy was really going to fight with them and get them more money and fight, you know, and was going to be a street fighter, which they wanted, you know, again, this is not necessarily something that Paul wanted or needed, but I think at this point, you know, knowing that they may need somebody to be uh, a street fighter that was attractive to them.
1: Yeah. Well, and maybe waving the money, you know, maybe the show of cash, was more persuasive to, uh, George and Ringo, but it wasn't in Paul's case. I think, you know, Paul was just like, okay, great. Uh, I see a stack of bills, but well, why am I going to give you 20%? I know what money looks like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree that, 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 you know, John was complaining about money, about his lack of it. And George and Ringo certainly had much less than Lennon or McCartney. So somebody who was promising to be fighting for their contracts, a much more lucrative contract, probably would have been, um, you know, really, really sexy to them. You know, Clearly the the Eastmans were very good at actually negotiating contracts since Paul's a billionaire. But I don't know if they would right. have had the same um, salesmanship.
1: John George and Ringo probably looking for a quick payout.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I, I also think that from all accounts – Klein is a good salesman, you know, yeah, if, yeah. if that's mm-hmm. your thing and if you like to buy it and that's what you're looking for, somebody who says, I'll be a street fighter on your behalf, yeah. you know, it's all, it's a, we're buddies, you know, that kind of thing, you know, I'm an anti-establishment that, you know, yeah. maybe that appealed to them. Whereas again, you get the very buttoned up Eastman's Harvard, whatever, you know, Stanford law that maybe they just seemed a little intimidating and dry. I I don't know. I mean, by all accounts, Lee Eastman apparently can be volatile as well. So I'm not sure why that didn't appeal to them. But anyways, but, you know, it's not like John, George, and Ringo weren't warned, you know, that, you know, Paul gave them information in advance saying, hey, listen, I've heard apparently he heard from the Eastman's that this guy's got a bad reputation you know, which apparently (laughs) endeared him to John even more. But then, you know, on, in April 69, the Sunday Times actually published a big spread on, on Klein. And, uh, you know, they did a big profile on him that was called the toughest wheeler dealer in the pop jungle. But, you know, in it, they actually talk about the fact that, Klein had been involved in over 40 lawsuits that the SEC was investigating his affairs. And the Stone's North American royalties were paid directly into Klein's own company. So this is in April before the Liberty Bell, before anything was formally signed. And so, you know what? These guys were warned.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Paul McCartney is not the only one who can read a fucking newspaper in this band.
0: Right. All all four of
1: them are capable of doing that.
0: Right. So this was not a matter of just Paul disliking Klein or saying he's not my type of guy. I mean, they've got a giant spread saying this guy has 40 lawsuits and he's being investigated. And yes, he's not paying the stones their royalties. So, you know, maybe think twice.
1: Yeah. But if you if you just read the headline, it sounds pretty cool, pretty rock and roll. The toughest wheeler dealer in the pop jungle.
0: <laughs> I swear to God, that's all their eyes saw was like, Ooh. oh yeah,
1: that plus a picture. And it was like, done, that's my guy. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> they were like, ability to lie like a trooper, sign me up. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> they didn't realize he was going to be lying to them.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're like, well, he wouldn't lie to us. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's exactly. a scumbag, but like. We just met him, so of course he's going to be loyal to us. (laughs) Right. That's how that works, right?
0: And so then the Eastmans got involved. And I'm always astounded by the the accounts of what the Eastmans were put through. That, um, you know, John and Klein both taunted the Eastmans, referring to them as Epstein. You know, basically...
1: Taunting them for being Jewish? Yeah. Called them animals.
0: Oh, right. Animals. Yes. I mean, that's insane.
1: And went on a long rant about how Lee Eastman changed his name, fl- like fleeing the Nazis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. right. What a phony.
1: Yeah, a exactly. Yes, exactly. He's a phony. Right. Oh, my God, John.
0: And this is what they said, which makes no sense whatsoever, that the Eastmans came with um, a, a dossier mm-hmm. full of information on what a crook Klein was. <laughs> However, was, yeah. Klein had the information that Lee Eastman had changed his name, which apparently was way worse than the fact that, you know, I, I don't know why that that all of a sudden made them seem like frauds. And then Chalk. it says here yeah. that e- that uh, Klein began interrupting everything Eastman said with a string of the most disgusting four-letter words, And then finally Eastman exploded in a huge rage. And, you know, it's like, and then they're always on John and Klein's side. It's just like, it just sounds awful. And remember they, they have all these weird taunts that are just dirty against the Eastmans. You know, I got to think the Eastmans were, must've been just like, what the fuck do we, I want to go back to my artists. Yeah. You know, like they're painters, like who wants to deal with that shit?
1: Oh my God. John is such a psycho. God bless Linda for marrying Oh, I can't believe Yoko was like, oh, I just married John. And we were so groovy. And then all these these three in-laws were standing over looking at us funny. It's like, bitch, no, you just described Linda's situation. Like Linda married Paul and had to deal with his fucking psycho. Insane. Yes. Absolute insane ex for the rest of her life. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. He's insane. He is. And like really went so hard on her and her whole family.
0: Oh my God. Yes. (sighs) Made her and her family the, the public enemy number one. For the Seriously? rest of their lives. Seriously. Whereas whereas Paul at every opportunity is is supporting John and Yoko, getting them back together when they break up. John took every opportunity to predict the demise of the Paul and Linda marriage and call her unattractive and a groupie and not a real photographer. So
1: <laughs> call the Eastman animals.
0: <laughs> oh my god. No wonder no wonder they did not like John.
1: <laughs> oh my god.
0: The one time I feel some empathy or understand John John's perspective is that Klein was more of a traditional manager in that he was out there greasing the wheels with the record record companies and the the you know news and yeah. the media and that kind of thing. Like he was hustling, and they wanted. Well, a he probably
1: he probably was good at that. Actually, I'm not disputing that. I just I'm saying he also a dirtbag and he cheated them.
0: <laughs> right again. Klein probably just thought, this is how I operate for my clients. I don't want to suggest that Klein is just purely evil, but he, the way that he was operating was not aligned with the values of, well, the Beatles in the past. And it was ultimately not in the interest of the artist, any of the artists that he represented.
1: So, and and Lewis's argument is like, well, they needed a manager. So, you
0: know, (laughs) right. Like they couldn't have found, they're the biggest act in the world and they couldn't have found another manager. Uh They're
1: the Beatles. This is a ridiculous conversation. I know it is. You're saying the Beatles cannot get a manager. Get the fuck out of here. That's what it's like. Paul's point about the 20%. He's like, no.
0: Right. 15. Well, it's that is crazy. He's like, the guy wants us. We're in the power position. Don't fucking give away your power. Right. And they're like, like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's he going to do? Walk? Then we might get somebody better. Great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It makes no sense except for the fact, I think that John and Yoko were emotionally invested in Klein that, you know, they were,
1: they were, and they're not patient. Like, I think that, I think John was just like, oh, let's just get it over with. Let's get, get it done. Right. And, and Paul's it, like, slow down a second, John.
0: You know, and it, exactly. Like, slow down. We have all the power in this situation. I know this they is did, a lot of money
1: we're talking about. And this like, is, this let's is, make an informed decision. And this is our
0: future. You know, this is our right—the biggest band in the world. This is our future. Let's not rush this with somebody we don't trust. And yeah, I know they needed to be rene- rene- There was a lot of financial and negotiations happening at that moment. I guess that was what's going on. But again, the, the Eastman's were trustworthy in that they were negotiating for the band, for the good of the band. You know, the, 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 basically they had lawyers that could have represented them if they hadn't chosen a group manager anyways. Yeah. But you know, and the interesting thing is so Klein tried to bully Paul and I mean, it's distressing hearing that Paul was dream, having nightmares about him and thinking that he was like an evil dentist trying to kill him. I mean, People laugh at that, and Paul says that people laughed at him, but fundamentally, this is how deeply troubled he was by Klein, is he felt like he was spiritually or creatively going to be killed by this person. And that's not appropriate. You shouldn't be managed by somebody that you think is going to kill you. There's a Ken Mansfield story about how Ken Mansfield left when like a lot of people were either fired or left when Klein came in, you know, Peter Asher talks about how he left at that time too. He was part of the exodus to to LA and, and Ken Mansfield was also part of this movement back to LA. And I guess Klein, for some reason, Mansfield tells the story that Klein thought that Mansfield had a rapport with Paul and had some influence with Paul. So he flew to LA to talk to Mansfield, offered to double or triple his salary to lure him back to Apple because Klein wanted somebody there who could I guess broker a deal between him and Paul, you know, somebody who would be influencing Paul but would be on his side as well. And when Mansfield wouldn't go for that, he challenged Klein, challenged him to a game of tennis and Mansfield, you know, California guy, was just like, um, okay, seriously overweight, um, unfit guy, I'll challenge you to a game of tennis. And he was shocked that Klein was so determined and desperate to sign Ken back that he almost won this game, defying all odds, given that he was not in any way um athletic and Mansfield was, which I guess, you know, Mansfield was like, he must've really wanted it. But in the end, I think Mansfield won. And then he had the opportunity to go, you know, to take this opportunity and go back to London. And, and he talked to his advisors and mentors in, in LA and makes the point that they said, you know, who you're aligned with is really critical in your career. And so he made the decision that he did not want to be aligned with Klein. And I mean, it was all ridiculous anyways, because Mansfield said, hey, I didn't have any pull with Paul anyway. So it would, would have been a moot point. But to me, this is interesting to show how desperate Klein was to figure out how to get Paul on board.
1: Yeah. And to show that he doesn't really know.
0: He doesn't know how to like, get him. He-
1: he he doesn't really get Paul. Yeah. He doesn't understand what makes him tick at all.
0: Right. I mean, he's he's approaching Mansfield who is friendly with Paul. But Paul is I mean, Paul is deeply hard to get to know and I think that Paul is friendly with a lot of people without them being close. And Cl- yeah, Klein
1: doesn't right. Klein doesn't get it. He- and Ken Mansfield is like Dude, I Paul isn't going to do what I say.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, Pen, Mansfield's like I adore Paul, but Paul doesn't listen to me.
1: Yeah, right. He's like Paul is the boss. I don't know what you think is going on here.
0: Right. <laughs> you can you can no. offer to triple my salary, and I might take it, but <laughs> right. it's not going to change anything in the situation. It's
1: not. It's not going to work out for you.
0: Yeah, it's shocking. Really, Klein worked so hard to understand John, but he showed a total lack of understanding of Paul. Like. He can't get a handle on him at all. His view of Paul is so weird that I wonder where it even came from. You know, like he doesn't seem to get the fact that this brilliant artist who writes all these beautiful songs is actually deep and sensitive and principled. Like he seems to think that Paul is just a shallow egomaniac that will apparently leave his wife if um, other blondes are paraded around him. You know, it, it's just, it's odd. And, there, and, you know, one other story that we have is in, there's a biography of Klein. I can't believe that Klein has his own biography, but he does. Um, I, I guess it's a relative of his that wrote this biography. And at one point, Paul calls Klein and he wants to talk, talk to Klein. And Klein's in the middle of a meeting with, you know, the the Apple staff. And he says, take a message, which would have been very disrespectful. I mean, Paul's an owner of the company. Klein works for them. And so I'm sure Paul expects when he calls that Klein takes his call, but he doesn't. He says, take a message. And then, so Paul obviously doesn't like this. And he says, if he doesn't take this call, Klein will never talk to me again. And Klein just, again, this is in front of all the staff, uh, Yeah. which Paul, I understand why Paul did that. I mean, you know what? Who's Who's the boss here? Paul owns the company. Paul made the company with John and George and Ringo. And Klein again says, take a message. And that's the last time they spoke. So you want to try and fuck Paul over? There you go, Klein. Yeah. You broke up the Beatles and you never talked to Paul again. So
1: that's, that's a real important lesson from the Beatles story. Right. Don't fuck with Paul.
0: Don't fuck with Paul. Don't he wins
1: well, he's not going to back down. And here's the other thing is like, he can control himself.
0: Right. Paul, Paul's much more able to play the long game.
1: So I think he just, he just misjudged Paul greatly. I think he really underestimated how strong Paul was.
0: Well, I feel, I feel like this is representative of the entire fandom and their perception, their perpetual (laughs) perception of Paul is that, they underestimate how incredibly powerful Paul is and was and is. And in every single interview that I've seen from Paul in the 60s and 70s, he continually makes the point that he is equal to John. They were equals. They saw each other as equals. You know, um, George Martin says they were equals. You know, Jeff Emmerich says they were equals. Everybody who is close to them see John and Paul as equals. And yet the fandom treats them not like this, but this shows the fact that Paul was fucking serious. He demanded respect as an equal and I mean, okay, so the the argument is that he tried to skew things in his favor with Linda's family, but from what we understand, there's an art uh, there's an interview with Linda from seventy four where she basically says, "Hey, they were." sort of in a bad situation, my parent, my father happened to be a big time lawyer for the entertainment, for entertainers. And so I said, well, maybe he can help. She says, he's a nice guy. I said, maybe he can help. And so I think that that's how he initially came through. And from what I understand, the other Beatles were okay with that because they needed help. And I can understand why Paul would have reasoned that, well, listen, they're not going to want to screw me because, you know, this is all going to their daughter. So we can trust them. So I think from Paul's perspective, it's like, hey, we can trust these people because if they screw the Beatles, they screw me and then they screw their own daughter. So why wouldn't they do what's in our best interest? They want to take a lower cut. Now, I understand. So to me, I understand why Paul thought that they might be a good choice. Yeah.
1: Well, and Paul's not trying to get over on the other three as as far as we know there's no evidence that he's trying to do that what do you mean like it's it's not like he's gonna be getting the eastmans to get him advantages over the over like right beatles well i mean i don't even know how they think at that
0: point that he would they would do that given that they're renegotiating contracts as a band you know it's It wasn't, they didn't each have their own management at that time, you know? So Paul, and and the other thing is, is I feel like he brought them in and said, hey, these guys can help the band. I think eventually Paul said, yeah, they're going to manage me. But I think that he was trying to bring them in. Yeah, yeah. For the band rather than John who signed that, you know, day one as, yeah, you're my manager, fuck the band. You know?
1: Right, right, right. I
0: just think that, like, thinking about the emotional part of this here. I think that it might have become so emotional and personal because I think both of them would think, Why are you trusting that person over me? You know, like mm-hmm. I'm sure that John thinks, I know what's best for the group. And so you should trust me with Klein. And Paul is kind of like, Why are you trusting this person you just met? Over yeah. me and betraying me for this jackass. And I'm sure that created so much pain. And then vice versa, like, you know, John always portrays that Linda came out of nowhere, even though, you know, Paul yeah. dated her as long as he did Yoko. But, you know, John likes to, I guess for John, it came out of no. She came out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, now you're married to her and you're trusting her family over me? And so I think that you know, I, one of the things the authorship doesn't take into account enough is, is how much uh, that would personally bother them. Like that would be, that's their egos. And they're like, don't you love me more than you love Klein? Don't you love me more than yeah. you do the Eastmans? Don't you trust me more? You know, so there's, a, a, you know, beyond just staking out who their person is, I think that there would be a personal sense of betrayal and hurt underneath that. So, you know, so we, we've just talked about the impact, you know, the, the, the situation, uh, with Klein and why Paul probably wouldn't have wanted to choose Klein as a manager, but ultimately that came to a head in early May.
1: Now we're going to talk about an incident that occurred in May of 1969 Um, which Paul described to Lewison as the cracking of the Liberty Bell. Mm -hmm. Um, The Liberty Bell is a, a symbol of freedom and emancipation American culture.
0: So Paul says that this is when the Liberty Bell cracked. And just to clarify, when the Liberty Bell cracked, it was rendered unringable. So basically that's when the Liberty Bell was destroyed.
1: Right. This was, this was a big breach of trust um, from Paul's point of view.
0: Yeah. I was just going to say that it's, it's interesting because this is not like an agreed upon, you know, date that they, uh, they all holds as being this important. This is for Paul when the Liberty Bell became cracked. So, and this is from Paul's perspective. And it's interesting because as much as he fights for this band, we can see that he looks back and he sees this as basically the day that things became unfixable. It was just sad.
1: I just wanted to add that um, you can visit the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. I've seen it in person.
0: Me too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess what had happened is on the 8th of May, John George and Ringo had signed a contract uh to officially appoint Klein as Apple's financial manager. And uh, they basically came into the studio and tried to persuade slash force Paul to sign the contract so that he would also appoint Klein as Apple's financial manager. And Paul pushed back, you know, I guess that he he said that the three came in and they were adamant that Paul had to sign now because Alan needed this for his board, and you know, Paul rightly pushed back and said, um, "What board? You know, he's he's a manager. He's not he's not a CEO of a large corporation." But of course, you know, one can see John, George, and Ringo believing in that, and so so he uh, he pushed back and he said, "No, you know, I'm not until my lawyers can look at it. I'm not signing." And besides that, why are we agreeing to 20% when we're the biggest band in the world? You know, we probably have some leverage here. You know, they seem to be in a hurry. And Paul was saying, we can wait for the weekend. We don't, it's Friday. I don't need to sign this tonight. Nothing's going to happen over the weekend. Yeah. And the unfortunate part is that they said, well, we're sorry to hear that but we're going to proceed anyways. It's three against one. And that's enough for us to appoint him as our manager. And I think the really upsetting thing for him was that they had had an agreement that everything in the Beatles would be, have to be unanimous. All major decisions would have Mm -hmm. to be unanimous or else they, you know, they kind of all had to say, hell yes, we're on board or else they didn't proceed. I guess there had been a couple of small incidents where there had been some, you know, this had happened, but on all major, major decisions, they'd always stuck to this agreement. And this is the first time they violated this agreement. And it's interesting because this is not a small time to be violating the agreement. This is like probably one of the most important decisions that they'll make because this is so much about their future. And they overran him and said, well, too bad we're going with him, so you're going with him. And I guess Paul was absolutely devastated by this. You know, and then they they, they I guess had all come in for a session in the studio, but then they had this big fight and Paul, you know, Paul talks about it he says it was extremely aggressive, that they were you know, it was a real big battle, a big emotional battle between them because they were forcing him to sign. He didn't want to sign. He was, you know, seemed like a holdout. They said that he was stalling. I mean, it sounds pretty awful for four guys that are supposed to be really great friends and bandmates. And yeah. uh, when, when he wouldn't sign and they said they were going ahead anyways, they left the studio and he was left there. And Steve Miller came in to record a song called... Uh, my dark dark hour hour. yeah, suitably my dark hour and paul ended up joining him on the drums and sort of thrashing out his feelings onto that song which i'm kind of happy he had that song to work on you know in this in this situation rather than just going like at least it was somewhere to channel his probably grief i mean if he remembers this as the liberty liberty bell being cracked I mean, that's a huge statement about basically he thinks this is when the Beatles were ruined in his mind.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, it's pretty awful.
0: Right. And again, I'm not sure why this is never used as a betrayal of Paul. I mean, the thing is, is Paul was right. He was proven right in the long run. Klein was not a good representative for the Beatles.
1: Yeah, I mean, A, he's right. But B, even if he wasn't right, he has the right to object to who is going to be their representative. Right. Not the least of which is, like, because of Klein's behavior towards Paul and his attitude towards Paul.
0: Right, which we just detailed. I mean, why the hell would he sign, you know, after that kind of treatment? I mean, who who among us would want to sign with somebody to represent right. us in our future with somebody that was berating and bullying us? I mean, it just sounds despicable to me.
1: That the other Beatles would allow Klein to act that way towards Paul is kind but, of horrifying.
0: It bothers me that these guys are supposed to be great friends, and they are okay with Klein behaving this way. I just—I
1: mean, assuming that John is sort of spearheading the whole thing. Yeah, I would, as- which he
0: apparently was.
1: Yeah, which which he apparently was. Then then, if I was Paul in that situation, I would think he doesn't love me anymore.
0: Right, because it seems like he's he wants to win at all costs. You know, because it's, it's, he's not, he doesn't care about my own personal happiness or our happiness as a partnership or as a band. This is about him. Yeah. And he doesn't care that I'm being treated badly. This is about him winning. Right. And John John says that, you know, John says that and Lennon remembers that he maneuvered to get Klein in and he maneuvered really hard to get his guy in.
1: Yeah. He said, I did a job to get Klein in. I mean, like I right. fucking conned the other Beatles. So what?
0: Yeah. And he says, oh, well, that's, you know, that's the game. And I'm not sure you don't hear Paul saying that about the Eastman's. You know, that, that's not his perspective. <laughs> like I was trying to pull one over to get my guy in.
1: Well, I don't think he was maneuvering to get the Eastman's in. I think he was like, I, I think once it all became sort of adversarial and stuff, like here's the thing is like, if, uh, whatever. I'm not trying to make John the bad guy or whatever, but I'm saying if John Lennon is plotting against me and is maneuvering against me, and then I think that he doesn't love me,
0: yeah, you're going to get some backup.
1: Yes, because that's not a situation I want to be in. I don't want to be. I don't want to be fighting John Lennon when there isn't when he's not restrained by love. Right. You know, if he's taking the gloves off, like, because, uh, you right, we, but, you know, we know how John fights when he takes off the gloves. I mean, he will kick you in the balls. like Right. He's not he's
0: not playing fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I, I think personally that when we look at John's behavior with regard to Klein, this is it's not that he didn't love Paul. It's that he John felt like he needed his own protection against Paul, that Paul was such a strong player at this point that he was willing to go get his guy at all costs to make sure that he was, he,
1: he was powerful. I believe that I do believe that, but I, I would be scared if I was Paul.
0: Well, especially, you know, if you're Paul and you let's, let's assume that Paul in good faith drove the Beatles after Brian died. He wanted to keep them busy and mm-hmm. acted because he knew that that was the best for keeping the band together. Yeah. I mean, then if I were Paul, I would feel like, man, I've, I've spearheaded everything we've done in the past couple of years to keep us together. This has not been for my own glory or anything like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, Paul, Paul had an ego, but I do think that he legitimately was trying to drive the band for the sake of the band. Even John says later that, you know, he kind of throws Paul credit for that. He kept us going. And then this is kind of the payback that he gets. It's like, well, good job, but you're going to submit and going to be overrun by us now. You know, it's, it's yeah. so disrespectful to really what I, I'm sure he sees is his massive investment in, you know, ensuring that the, the Beatles would continue as a working unit, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, I would start to rethink things after that. Well,
0: and clearly based on, you know, I was surprised when I heard that this is when, what Paul called the the, the crack of the Liberty Bell in that, you know, you think that Paul's not out of it, you know, Paul's fighting to keep the band in September, but you can sort of see that maybe this was the point where Paul didn't want the Beatles to break up. He still loved everyone. He still wanted it to continue. But the fact that he pins this date means there was something probably in the pit of his stomach that said, it's done. If we've turned on each other like this or if they've turned on me like this, yeah, it's done. And so Paul did what he always does. He just kept playing music,
1: you know? Well... He keeps going. He says, Let's get this last album finished. Let's go out on a high note. You know? Yeah. And but the thing is is that that it's always portrayed Paul is always portrayed as so desperate to keep the band together, but I don't really see any desperate behavior in terms of like trying to keep the band together because he's, he's not he's not capitulating
0: he's not that. he's standing strong he'll continue with them and he wants to do a great last job you know he's going to go out with class but it's like this is maybe where he fell out of love a little bit with the Beatles yeah you know what I mean like it's, it's like when all of a sudden you're with somebody and they just do something and you're like I can't see you the same way anymore so one of the books we've read recently is Ken Womack's book, which is called Solid State, the Story of Abbey Road and the End of the Beatles. In dis- discussing the Liberty Bell situation, the selection of Klein as their manager, we see this as a betrayal of Paul. But I think for, you know, he takes the perspective that um, that John would have seen this as a betrayal. This is a quote from in, from his book. It says, For the others, Lenin especially, such a declaration amounted to turning his back on his mates, who had always carried out business together, in a miniature democracy in which a majority ruled. Oh fuck off! They roared, and with that, McCartney's bandmates left the studio, leaving him alone and bewildered. In Olympic, so you can see there that you know he he takes a very different perspective, and I think that you know. One of the issues is he makes the assumption that the majority ruled, which is different than Paul says. And, you know, even Lewison is supporting this right now that um, and Paul makes this point in his court case that for all major decisions, the Beatles had to have a unanimous decision. It is not majority ruled. So that this movement on their part was a betrayal of him. Whereas I think Womack doesn't realize this in that he says majority rules. So I think that from his perspective, he's thinking, well, Paul lost out. They all fought for their side, you know, for their guy or their person. And, you know, it was three against one. And at some point, Paul should have backed down and said, okay, I'll do what's best for the band. But by not signing and saying, I'm not going to do it, he was creating a division. I have to assume that that's where he's getting his point of view that, you know, for John, it was a betrayal.
1: Well, first of all, Paul's been consistent about the, um, group decisions needing to be unanimous. He's been consistent with that assertion for his entire life.
0: Yeah. And there's, there's, there's facts to support that now that this was the way that they rolled.
1: Yeah. Um, so that's a, and I don't know why Womack is coming up unawares on that. Like, I'm, I'm sure he's know done either. enough research, so that's a little disingenuous to me. But if you want to – like, I, I have no problem if, – if Womack is trying to represent what he believes John's internal thought process would be, That's that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. Because I think that's what authors should do. I think they should try to look at it from both parties' perspectives. So if Womack believes that John believes that this is a violation, that's fine. I don't mind. Let's play that out. But then if he's going to do that, then he needs to look at it also from McCartney's point of view, which, again, Paul's on the record multiple times saying we needed the decisions to be unanimous. They did not have my vote. So this is a clear violation of banned policy, right? So you've got to, you have to offer the flip side of that perspective responsibly, A. And then I, I think it's not difficult for any human being to understand the difference between being the one holdout in the band when three others are ganging up on you, how that's, that feels like a different type of betrayal than like everybody in the room agrees with with me except for one person. Right. Right. Like that's a different situation. Even children, Know the difference of that feeling, right?
0: Right. There seems to be an assumption that Paul's just being pigheaded or doesn't care. Like the thing is, is that, like you said, even children understand that this is a very, very uncomfortable situation Paul's in. Right. He's not. He's not doing this because he's betraying the group. He's doing this because he feels strongly against it. Because nobody wants to be in that situation. It's not fun. Exactly. And I mean, I agree that it's good to, I, you know, I like seeing that this is how John, John, John sees it because I think it's true. I think John did see this as a betrayal. I think John at some point was like, why aren't you trusting me? I know this guy is good for our band. I, I loved him so much. I signed within a day and you know, you can trust me. And the fact that Paul, is not willing to ultimately does not sign I'm sure was a deep cut to John in that fundamentally Paul is willing to walk and separate himself from the band over this, you know, that, that at some point John must've been like, holy shit, you're willing to do that.
1: Well, I guess my question is like, does John, Is the crux of the matter for John? I want this, Paul. Can you just give me one thing that I want? I love Alan Klein. (laughs) Like, I need him, right? He's my surrogate daddy and he understands me and he's going to stand up for me and he tells me I'm awesome and I need (laughs) that kind of moral support right now. Let me fucking have this. Is that like, is that where he's coming from? Because I buy that a lot more than I do, like, I'm the leader and you should respect me or what, you know, whatever. No, I, I don't know. Whatever Womack's that, point of yeah. view is that, that yeah. like. um.
0: Yes, I agree with you that. Well, I think it partly it's that, but there's partly the Jesus Christ, Paul, you, you know, we you should trust me. You know, you can trust me. You know, part of it that would be very hurt that Paul is willing to make a decision independent of John. At this point, you know, and is like so adamant that he's willing to not sign with the group.
1: Like, you know what I mean? But John is not bringing Alan Klein to Paul and saying, look, he's going to work for us. This is for this is for all of us. He's saying this is my guy. I mean, Klein is is John's guy. Klein is not. I I know he is. But John
0: is convinced even into nineteen seventy one in St. Regis, he's talking about, Klein still wants, we still want Paul to join us. Like John in 71 is still convinced that Klein was the right choice and that if Paul would come out of his spell, he would join them. So John is, I I agree with you that part of it's like, let me have this decision. And part of it is like, and you should let me have it because you know, I know best. Okay. I don't think it's be- okay. I don't think it's because he he thinks he deserves it because he the the leader. I think it's an emotional thing.
1: So you're saying that he 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 wholeheartedly believes that Alan Klein loves him, cares for him, and is working in his best interest, and is working in the best interest of the whole band. Yes. If only Paul would would put his ego aside and let John pick the pick the manager.
0: Absolutely. I think that's what John believes. and That's that he's,
1: mind-boggling to me.
0: <laughs> I know, but you got to remember, this is John we're talking about.
1: It's true. Well, and we have the benefit of hindsight, right? Because we know what happens. Well, like, we know he's a crook. So we we can, do. We do. You know, we already know the end of the story. John doesn't at this point. John doesn't.
0: And, and like I said, in 1971, we know he's still saying, we would love for Paul to join us. Alan would love it you know that if only he you know when he get, when he gets his divorce he can join us you know so that he thinks that Paul is being clouded by Lyndon the Eastman so i can see how john would think this was a betrayal that he paul is so devoted to the eastmans and his new wife that he is willing to not sign what is clearly the best option for the beatles now again i don't know why wamack looking at this does not Say that you know that this may have been how John felt, but it was also slightly irrational, given that Klein did Mm -hmm. not even try to charm Paul. That was adversarial to Paul.
1: That that's the sticking point for me.
0: Again, I like understanding John's point of view because then his actions seem less mean and more like I personally think that John was taking everything so personally and was not seeing things from a you know, a greater perspective. It was all about him at that point. You know,
1: I I, I agree, but but here's the thing: is like, why have I never read a single Beatle book that is like, you know, John Lennon thought it was a major betrayal that Paul McCartney didn't also fall in love with Alan Klein and go along with this whole dumbass scheme, um, even though McCartney had just seen, you know, had 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 already witnessed John go all in with the Maharishi to disastrous results, go all in with, you know, magic Alex, the Greek Island, what, whatever John's flavor of the month is, mm-hmm. you know, how many times does John have to display bad judgment on a personal level for anybody to take Paul's side on this? <laughs>
0: There is no end to how many times he can do it. Understanding John's point of view, I think is really important too. And I do think that he probably felt like, you know, even if you don't like Alan Klein, don't you love me more to just sign with a band for God's sake? Like just put your ego aside, sign with the band, let me have this guy and I know best for us. Right. Like, like step down. You've let us for a year and a half. Let me leave now. Right,
1: right, 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 right. Yeah. I, I... I can see that too. I can see that too. But no matter that John felt that way, it still wasn't the right decision. Alan Klein was the wrong decision. And, and that's, it's bothersome to me that we're not coming from that point of view when we tell the story.
0: Right. And, and the thing is, is that that may have been what John wanted. But what, you know, we just outlined why that would not have been appropriate for Paul. Why would the, why would a guy at the top of his game who has more information agree to that? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's not rational. It's not even, even, you know, I'm all for loyalty and sometimes acting on behalf of loyalty over rationality. You know, I understand that, but you know, there, there, there is a limit.
1: Well, yeah. And Paul and John is not loyal. I mean, at, at least he's not going forward.
0: Well, and I think I think that that early move on John's part of sending his information to Klein the day after he met him was not loyal, right? You know that would that would have been an indicator to Paul that now John's working on his own. Be- uh, John and Yoko were working on their own behalfs rather than, you know, waiting for Paul to get on board and them all making a decision. So, you know, he sort of, t- weirdly, he takes John's perspective emotionally and says that, you know, John and the others felt like this was a betrayal. Again, I can understand on some small level that Paul held out and didn't go with the group. It probably s- seemed like a break in the group's dynamics the first time somebody held out and said, no, I'm not going along with you guys. However, when we have the information that they were supposed to make decisions as a group, then it seems like, no, no, no the betrayal was against Paul. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that Paul calls this the Liberty, you know, when the Liberty bell cracked in his mind. And I think that to me, that suggests that this is a hugely emotional moment for Paul, where the dynamics changed irreparably in the Beatles for him. Mm -hmm. And this idea of like, all of a sudden it it became a three to one dynamic and he was a little bit alienated and ostracized from the group. And I think there's, you know, that is in, in, in old cultures to, to punish people, they ostracize them. You know, that is one of the most painful things you can go through. And so, you know, in let it be, we see Paul sort of, managing the group and trying to do something for the greater good of the group. And even he maintains to this day that he didn't want Alan Klein because he did not think it was for the greater good of the group. He thought Alan Klein was going to swindle them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Paul felt like he was, he was arguing for the greater good of the group, but I think this might have turned the tables where all of a sudden Paul becomes more vulnerable himself, more, maybe emotional himself, maybe more, you know, I think John had been taking things personally yeah. for a long time. I think Paul might've yeah. started taking things personally because it's so yeah. hard to be walking into a situation thinking, were people talking about me? What are they saying behind my back? Do they hate mm-hmm. me? You know? Yeah. And then, you know, and this is basically the situation going forward until, until they break up is that they're on opposite sides.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the point in the story where I, I, Start to root for Paul to leave the band
0: <laughs> i me too, me too, because it's just a an emotionally devastating place to be in and and I don't think Paul did anything anything to deserve that, except for I think that he was incredibly on fire and productive and determined Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know, all the things that make him great might've been annoying, but at the same time, I do think that Paul always fought for the greater good of the group.
1: Yeah, I think that's it. I think you a hundred percent nailed it. That was Paul's biggest sin was being on fire and leading the band and giving them their biggest hits and the, the most direction. Now, Along with that, along with being this, you know, hugely creative fucking dynamo rock star, he I'm sure was also like big headed, egotistical, selfish. Oh,
0: yeah. I and mean, there's lots of evidence of that, too. Uh, lots right. of evidence of
1: that. Right,
0: right. <laughs> he had an <laughs> ego. <laughs> We're not saying we're not saying Paul is the same and we know he's pigheaded. So we understand a little bit, maybe the John George Ringo perspective that, oh, this is Paul being, you know, digging in again. But again, we outlined the fact that, you know, that this wasn't just one of Paul's, you know, stubborn points of view.
1: Right. And not for nothing, but like being one of the most celebrated, creative musical geniuses of your time. You know, having a big ego is kind of a side effect of that. (laughs) So, you know, that's just how it works. And let's not pretend for five seconds that John Lennon was not a raging egomaniac in 1969. Like, don't even come at me with that. Don't even, don't even fucking start.
0: (laughs) They were both hugely insecure as well. But yes, yes. I mean, you cannot throw the egomaniac thing at Paul. And you know what? For that that matter, let's throw George into it. Because there's lots (laughs) of accounts of fans of George at that time, just saying that George was pretty full of himself as well.
1: Right. So let's just say that, that, Probably that was something that affected all the Beatles at some right. point or another, you know? So if that's Paul's biggest sin at that time, that doesn't mean that he deserves the the treatment that he was that was doled out to him. Now, since we've discussed Kenneth Womack, I, I'd like to also address some of Mark Lewison's recent commentary on this issue. Lewison told the story of the Liberty Bell on a Dutch podcast and the Dutch podcast didn't know what the Liberty Bell was, and they asked, what is it? And Lewis said, uh, I think, I don't know. I think it's a ship on a bell, or I think, it's a, I think it's a bell on a ship or something, and it signals, I don't know. This is a guy who calls himself a historian, by the way. A historian, a Beatles historian, which, P.S., is not a thing.
0: No, it's I, not a degree.
1: That's not, it's not a real thing. And yet I constantly see him referred to as Beatles historian. I'm not going to make fun of Mark Lewison for not knowing what the Liberty Bell is. Um, it's pretty famous, but he's not American. And fine, if he's just some random British guy who doesn't know what the Liberty Bell is, that's one thing. Um, theres I'm never going to shame people for not knowing stuff because nobody knows everything, even historians. Um don't know basic symbols of American freedom. but um, the part that's disturbing to me is that he cared so little about this story that Paul shared with him about what he considered the pivotal moment in the Beatles breakup when he felt that his trust had been irreparably <laughs> violated that Mark Lewison, didn't care enough to fucking Google the Liberty Bell and find out what that was.
0: Right. Meanwhile, he traveled to where John and Yoko got married just so he could experience it. I mean, if John had said that, he would have traveled to the Liberty Bell. He would have been on the first plane to have gone and examined it, kissed it, prayed to it.
1: Yeah. So that's that's how little... Mark Lewison cares about Paul's story. I mean, if he wants to write a book about John Lennon, I would say go for it, because I don't care about that. But he's appointed himself the final word on the Beatles' history. And I think that's, I've got some problems with that. I don't want the story according to John, again. I've already heard that story. I want and expect McCartney's perspective to have equal time.
0: And there seems to be this implied sense you know, that we've talked about before that Paul sort of overstepped his bounds and you know what I mean? And yeah. we just don't see it that way. I don't see it that way at all. I mean, I never and,
1: see that way. No. And, and,
0: you know, I just think that this is an impossible situation for him. And, and, you know, as we've discussed, he goes forward and wants to make the, you know, wants to go out in style and with class with, with Abbey road. And and I'm really glad that he did that. It was like, you know, they were able to separate the business from the musical which was nice but at, at the same time i mean how was paul supposed to go forward w- with this situation which is i guess why you know this is a situation that raged all through the, the summer was the management issue between them and why ultimately paul blames it on business issues not musical issues right he, you know he says yeah. he says that it was when they became when they started acting like businessmen rather than musicians, that things really fell apart, which, you know, is a different way of talking about the fact that the story that we've been telling, which is that when they separated, when there was a crack in their identities and their their bond as like partners, mates, soulmates, musical best friends, when that cracked and they started acting differently towards each other, you know, this is mine, this is mine this is my guy, this is my guy, you know, that all of a sudden they started acting more like adversaries and business people and forgot about the emotional. But unfortunately, the emotional was still there. I think the crunch came when what we started to argue about was business, the Apple business. And you get one viewpoint from so-and-so and and -and so-and-so's lawyer and -and so-and-so's, everyone was represented on all these sides. And I think that just when the game changed to a money game instead of a music game, uh, it was it was one we didn't have a framework to exist in, and it got nasty. You know, Paul was really good at empathizing with John in Let It Be. Uh-huh. You know, like he says he gets what they're going through. He's really trying to understand John and Yoko's relationship and what John needs, and he he makes the point numerous times over this year and the next year about what he thinks John needs. You don't see that from John. You know, I don't think that John empathizes with Paul's position very much. And I think this is a, a big problem with, the other, with all three of them is they see Paul as so strong. They don't realize that Paul is hurting too, that this is not a fun position to be in. And unfortunately, authors side with them and still yeah. don't take, you know, still don't empathize with Paul's perspective. I think this whole thing that we're tracing is a series of provocations and tests that, unfortunately, like all John wants is, is a reaction, yes. is a reaction to show that he cares, and unfortunately, Paul's default fault mode when he's hurt is probably to become less and less reactive, right? And so you see, I think that's why things spiraled at this point, you know, well, because well, John keeps upping the ante. That's right, and and, and here's the thing is that in this situation where it's three against one, Paul's probably becoming more and more stoic because he's increasingly mm-hmm. hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like when you feel like you're now attacked by everybody, that's when people become really self-conscious and really sort of like in protective and mode because they're so vulnerable. This dynamic is really, really... Um, counterproductive for these two. We've got one who's desperate for a show of attention and love from one, his one partner and the other, who's becoming increasingly stoic because he's hurt. And, um, and I I think I was thinking about this the the other day that I think John George and Ringo are not, not acting well towards Paul at this point. Mm -hmm. However, fundamentally I think that they're all good guys. If they thought that Paul was truly hurt and vulnerable I'm not sure they would be trying to do what they're doing. Like, I feel like if they really thought that Paul was suffering and hurt, that, that they, would, they would try and help him. So the fact that they're sort of like the three against one situation and they're acting tough means to me that they think Paul is very strong and can take the blows. And is there, you know, is a worthy adversary of the three of them?
1: Absolutely. I agree. Well, I think from their perspective, they're trying to put pressure on him, and they're like, if we pressure him enough, he will he will find this. He'll just give in because he'll he'll think, oh, the fuck it is not worth it.
0: Right. They don't want to destroy Paul. They don't want Paul to leave. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that they that's desperately right. want Paul to stay.
1: That's right. That's right. That's not based Paul- on our opinion. That's 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 a base. That's based on the actual evidence.
0: Right. So the, they, they want to strengthen their position against Paul. So yes. that's the, the dynamic that yes. they're all in against Paul at this point, but they're not trying to annihilate him personally or anything like no. that, you know, from their perspective. Although sometimes it seems like that when you're empathizing with Paul,
1: they're trying to maximize their leverage.
0: Yes. And, you know, again, I think this reflects how, powerful Paul had gotten, not just from a big-headed, right. I'm right. gonna lead, lead you guys from just the fact that he was so productive and the one that was the most motivated.
1: And, and you know, again, I think this is where because Paul never really advocated for himself and never really pushed back and never gave his side of things until many, many, many years after the fact, I think it skewed this story so massively. Because we have the information now that Paul was hurt that he felt betrayed that he felt ostracized you know what i mean like we we know from mal that he went home and cried after the divorce we know that he went up to scotland and was drinking and couldn't get out of bed like we know all that stuff now we did not know that contemporaneously
0: right and and so they were reacting against what they they seemed to see Paul's actions as somebody who was strong and having a hissy fit, which is so ridiculous when we know the story now, but that is all evidence points to that is how they saw Paul as being egotistical and digging in his heels rather than somebody that really deeply 50 years later still believes and maintains that he was doing what he thought was right for the group and was proved out to be right.
1: Right. So we have, Very vital, important pieces of information that need to be integrated into this story in order to tell it correctly. One was that Paul was actually feeling very vulnerable and ostracized at this time. And the second thing is that the other Beatles were not aware of it.
0: And I would add that there's a third piece of information that needs to be taken into account, which is John's extreme emotionalism during this period.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. The the one bit that ha- that maybe seems to have been integrated into the story now sometimes is that Paul um
0: was sad, and depressed.
1: Was was sad, depressed and felt weak. Okay. But they don't account don't account for the fact that the other Beatles did not see him that way. So Wait. now the story becomes they hated him so They're, much. Yeah. Yeah, that they, well, that they were well, gleefully beating up on this guy who they never liked and wasn't really a part of the band and like, you know, John George and Ringo all kind of hated Paul and so they didn't mind and Paul, and
0: Paul, right t- and treating and him like them. this.
1: Yeah, and Paul right. exactly. Paul's sad because he had no friends and loved you know, them more
0: than they loved him. Yeah, cuz
1: he's they, just a loser. And they were the best thing that ever happened to him in his life because no one likes Paul.
0: (laughs) Whereas, you know, when we actually look at the situation, yes, (sighs) Paul was sad, and we know that now. But then we also can observe his actions, which suggested that Paul was anything. He was immovable. He was strong. He, you know, held out and didn't give any way. And so that's the Paul that they're seeing. And, no, I mean, I think the issue is that these guys – loved and admired Paul almost too much. Right. I mean, if they, if they didn't care about Paul, they wouldn't have tried to lock him into the group. They wouldn't have, you know, this is all a man, this is not a desire to escape each other. This is just a desire to reorganize things.
1: Right. Right. And then if you, you don't incorporate Paul's feelings about the situation and, um, you assume that he is just being an arrogant piece of shit who thinks he's better than everybody. And is just being obstinate for the sake of being a diva. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is the original story. This is the one that Lewis is trying to bring back. I was
0: going to say it's, it's having a comeback.
1: Yes. It's like the neocons, you know, <laughs> like they come
0: back. Yeah. Paul has no emotions. So
1: exactly. Paul, Paul is just a selfish, you know, egotistical piece of garbage. Exactly. Like, well, exactly like the guys thought he was in 1969. So let's just tell that story again, we're going to tell the original story and I'm going to, and and you all trust me now for some fucking reason. So I'm I'm going to get
0: a few facts to support this point and ignore all
1: others. Basically. Yeah. I'm here on behalf of John Lennon. He never met me, but he's appointed me spiritually to defend him in the court of rock and roll. And I'm going to tell his story
0: we also have another piece of information that hasn't been taken into account, which we talked about last episode, but it's really critically important to keep in mind is how emotional and emotionally devastated John was during this period as well. Like now it's weird because now our, our Mm -hmm. empathy goes to Paul and, and it's like, well, Paul was really depressed at this and he was fighting for the good of the band. And yet we're still sort of left with this idea that John was raging because he was just into Yoko and wanted to be leader again and didn't really care, <laughs> yeah. you know, Yeah, and yeah. making decisions and calling shots and, you know, not showing up for, you know, George's songs because, you know, he was a leader and didn't need to and whatever oh, yeah. else they, yeah, att- yeah. they, they attribute to him, you know, but he is in the throes yeah. of addiction in the summer. Of- he
1: has a full heroin beard.
0: Yeah, he has a, and a full heroin addiction, even though Lewis wants to deny it. I mean, this is when he goes cold turkey. And he, one does not go cold turkey if one is not addicted. So let's, <laughs> yeah. just, let's just clarify that. He looks terrible. He I mean, does. and those, those weren't injuries from the car accident. I mean, he just it's his lack of energy it looks kind of like dead in the eyes. Janov says that when he met John for the first time, he was startled by the intensity of John's emotional devastation. You know, he says the level of his pain was enormous as much as I've ever seen. He was almost completely non-functional. He couldn't leave the house. He could hardly leave his room. He had no defensive defenses. He was decompensating, which means falling apart. And that's from Norman. Um, but
1: but that's a direct know, quote from Janov.
0: That's from, th- that is, you know. In the Norman book, but that is a quote from from Jan on exactly, and, it, and, again, and
1: it's referring to the spring of 1970.
0: Well, even yeah, early spring or late winter of 1970. So, you know, again, I don't think that this just happened in because because John met Janoff before Paul announced mm-hmm. the separation, right? So. You know, and I don't think this happened overnight. This is something, you know, that if we trace back to the fact that John's got a raging heroin addiction in the summer of 69, that he's dealing with some major issues, too. And so, you know, his we blame him for being or I just blamed him or, you know, judged him for being a little bit reckless at this time. But fundamentally, John's in pain and trying to feel good. As Phoebe mentioned, there are three vital pieces of information we need to take into account to better understand the story, which are, one, that Paul was feeling vulnerable and emotional during this period, two, that the Beatles were not aware of Paul's feelings. They saw him as strong, confident, and powerful, and uh, digging in to get his way, which is why they were reacting to him in the way they were, and... A third crucial piece of information is that John was not, as widely assumed, checked out and disconnected from the Beatles during this period, but instead was highly emotional, highly reactive, and very, very invested.
1: These are all important pieces of information that really change the story and give us a better perspective of why each member acted the way he did, And we'll discuss them all in further detail in the next episode.
0: But there is one other critically important point that we will also dig into in the next episode. We've repeatedly talked about how Paul reacted very independently and powerfully during this period, regardless of his feelings of pain and hurt. And we believe there is an important reason why he was able to do this in the face of such social opposition. And that is because of the presence of one very special and powerful person in his life. And that person is Linda. So next episode, we will discuss the importance of Linda and how she impacted the situation.
1: We'll dig into the three points we just laid out. The battle over Northern songs, including the controversial extra shares issue, as well as the ongoing struggle between Klein and the Eastmans so buckle up and stay with us for the rest of this wild ride
0: hi everyone this is Diana if you are enjoying listening to this podcast please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts it will really help other people find the podcast and I love reading reviews mostly if they are good so please leave a good review um also you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram all under the name One Sweet Dream Podcast and you can email us at onesweetdreampodcast at gmail.com. Also, please check out Another Kind of Mind podcast. You can follow Another Kind of Mind in all social channels as Akon Podcast or on Instagram as Another Kind of Mind. You can also reach Another Kind of Mind at acompodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Bye.